Welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Uh, if you guys like this podcast, then please go give me a, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, subscribe to the channel if you're watching on YouTube. Uh, that would be huge. Uh, I got a lot of awesome conversations with a lot of awesome people. And today is another awesome conversation with another awesome person. I have with me again uh, Dr. Ryan Mullins, and we're going to be talking about his paper, demarcating the difficulty with demarcating panentheism. Um, so panentheism is uh, different than pantheism, different than theism, supposedly, uh, but Ryan's found some problems with that. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, without further ado, let's just bring Ryan in. Hey, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast, man. Yeah, anytime. This is always good stuff. Uh, I always have a hard time introducing like w- what you're doing. Can you just tell us real quick, like where are you at? What are you doing? Um, mm-hmm. for, for the for the audience here. Yeah, so I'm currently at the University of Helsinki. So I'm a part of this thing called the Collegium for Advanced Studies. So it's like an interdisciplinary research institute, um, primarily in the humanities and social sciences. Uh, and so I'm just doing a, a senior research fellowship where I'm just working on my next book, which is called From Divine Time Maker to Divine Watchmaker, and then like a million mm-hmm. other papers on all sorts of projects, um, including one on panentheism, um, among other things. Yeah, I was super excited about that because uh, we we read your paper. So I, I don't know if you know this or not, but a lot of people look to your paper as like the gold standard. Uh, a lot of professors that I've reached out to, they say that that's the paper. That's the one you want to go to. We we read it in class uh, here at, at Trinity and I had to present on it, but I, I chose to present it because I wanted to have you on. But it per- worked out perfect because you're you're kind of rehashing this again. So, man, I'm I'm stoked to talk about it. And I'm, I, I was really glad and when you told that, me that this is like, that's the case that people are looking at this paper, because uh, I was really hoping that this would be become the gold standard. And then I could eventually turn this into something like a, like an intro book to models of God. So I, I really am glad people are interested in this. Well, Ryan, is, is that what, is that what you're thinking about? So you said you're working on this again. Is this going to be another paper? Or is this a start to that, that models of God book? What do you think? It's it's a, a couple different papers I'm working on right now are going to eventually all go into a Models of God book. Um, so the paper that I've been asked to do, uh, Kirk, Kirk Lougheed is doing a, a project on the axiology of God. So like, should we want God mm. to exist? What kind of value does God bring to the world or disvalue? Because it might be the case, like if God has a particular nature, it'd be really horrible, like if God existed. Um, so, so what Kurt is, uh, the book proposal he's got in the works is looking at a bunch of alternatives to classical theism and going, should we want like open theism? Should we want pantheism? Um, like if a God like that existed, would that be good or bad? And so I've been asked to do the chapter on panentheism. Mm-hmm. And so trying to identify arguments for and against, uh, panentheism on those grounds of going, would this really be a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, and so it is part of the overall project of go- going, here are all the models of God. What are the options? What's good? What's bad? Okay. Awesome. Yeah. And we're going to get into a little bit of that today, uh, mm-hmm. different models. So uh, for those looking for the paper, it's the difficulty with demarcating panentheism, Sophia 2016. Um, but so as we kind of situate this, this conversation, um, what is the concept of God and uh, what is a model of God? 
Did you did, uh, right. did you hear that, Ryan? Sorry about that. Yeah, no, it's good. So, what a con- the concept of God is that of the greatest metaphysically possible being, which is the single ultimate foundation of reality. And so that's like the really basic concept of God that I think all models of God are working with, or at least should be able to agree on. Like no model of God's going to own the market on saying that God is perfect and that God's the foundation of reality. So what a model of God does is mm. it takes that really basic concept um, and tries to offer like a thicker articulation or conception of what it means for God to be perfect and what it, for, what it means for God to be the foundation of reality. So it's going to extend the concept in some sort of like unique particular conception of God. Uh, so what that typically looks like is specifying like a certain set of like great making properties that make God the greatest possible being. And then also specifying what sense God is the foundation of reality. So like a doctrine of creation ex nihilo could be one option, maybe like a eternal creation or like maybe an emanation, depending on which way you want to go. Now, what most of the models have got to agree on is that God is a necessarily existent being with properties like aseity, maximal power, maximal knowledge, maximal goodness, perfect rationality and perfect freedom. And those are pretty much relatively uncontested. So what a model of God needs to do is specify a set of unique claims from its rivals that demarcate it or make it stand out. And then from there, you can start testing different models to see which ones are like internally coherent, which ones fit best with uh, like different religious doctrines if you affirm a particular religion, and then which fit best with like reason and experience. So that's that's yeah. kind of the idea. Okay, so so um, I had Oliver Crisp on, and we, we talked a little tiny bit about models. In your conception of a model, is it is it like is it like a map versus the like a map of uh, Australia versus like seeing Australia itself, or um, well, what do you think of when you think of a, a model? It, mm-hmm. Yeah, as an analogy. Yeah, no, that's that's, that's quite good. Um, so, like a model, in one sense, it is it is abstracted from the reality. So it's not going to give the full picture and it's not meant okay. to, um, it's trying to, but it is trying to map on and the better it maps on, the better the model is. Um, so that, that is the idea. And so it's, it's a, it's borrowed from philosophy of science where they're trying to develop like theories, but there's more than just like, it's usually like a set of trying to map like a conception of how to map things onto reality. It's going to have a bunch of like auxiliary theories built into it usually as well. Um, but yeah, the better the map, the better the model. That would be one way to think about it. Okay. Okay. So, um, so that brings us to like models of God being debated today. So as I see it, there are five main models of God being debated today and see the disease would be called like classical theism and there's neoclassical or what sometimes is called like a modified classical theism. Then there's open theism, panentheism, and then pantheism. And I take this classification scheme from Janine Diller and Asa Kasher's book, uh, Models of God and Alternative Ultimate Realities. Mm. And then also just like reading through like a vast portion of the literature uh, on the nature of God and then looking at different books that are surveying these different issues and then a bunch of different research grants and research institutes that have popped up over the years. Um, so these are really the main models that are being discussed. There is a term that's sometimes used mainly in the internet um, called theistic personalism. Mm-hmm. But it's a very, very coarse grained concept. And I think it's very, very unuse- like uh, unhelpful. And I really can't stress that enough. So the classical theist Howard Robinson, um, like he points out that this like so-called dividing line between like classical theism and like theistic personalism is just like really greatly exaggerated. Uh, and it makes little sense when you when you look at what actual thinkers like Thomas Aquinas and Richard Swinburne say. So, and I think uh, Robinson's right about this. So, like, personally, I think we do the world of theology a really big disservice when we continue to speak of, like, theistic personalism, because I don't know anybody who's really actually wanting to, like, affirm this really, really coarse-grained idea. 
Instead, I think what we need to do is look at, like, give a close examination at these actual models of God and what different thinkers who affirm these different models of God are actually saying. I think that's what the world of theology needs for a much better debate about the nature of God. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And you're kind of driving it home for me right now. I've, I've thought about that a little bit, but but your paper made that point as well, because you're you're looking through different panentheists and they're saying different things. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, oh, yeah, we're individuals with different ideas. And so... Mm-hmm. No, no two, maybe not no two uh, neoclassical theists are going to be the same on everything. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that, that's an interesting point. There is a, a hardcore, as you mentioned in the paper, right. which I thought was funny because I'm just thinking of your hardcore music. Right. Uh, when I was exactly. Podcast. I'm like, oh, hardcore. All right. But it's, it's different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I took, I took the idea um, from okay, um, so, philosophy so of science, but yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. I love that. Well, um, You've, you've talked about a couple different models of God, classical, neoclassical, open theism, and we're dropping theistic personalism. That That's out, folks, so stop using that one. Um, can you just really quick say, you know, how, how do we demarcate those from each other? Yeah, so like I said before, all, all models of God agree that God's like a necessarily existent being with attributes like maximal power, maximal knowledge, and all that. Um, so that's like one thing that these, these three theistic models are going to agree on. Uh, another thing that they're all going to agree on is the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. So when it comes to understanding how God is the foundation of reality, like the classical, neoclassical, and open theists are all really clear that they're affirming that God creates the universe out of absolutely nothing. So there's going to be an ontological distinction between God and the universe or a multiverse if God wants to create a multiverse, um, you know, just cosmos, whatever that is. There's going to be some sort of ontological distinction between God and everything else. Now, what distinguishes these models from each other, though, uh, is they're going to make a particular set of claims about the nature of God and about the modal scope of God's knowledge or like how far God's knowledge extends. So the classical theist is going to affirm four unique attributes, which are timelessness, immutability, simplicity, and impassibility. And then they're also going to affirm that the modal scope of God's knowledge extends all the way to the future. So there's different ways to kind of cash that out, but they're going to say there's some sort of exhaustive foreknowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, the neoclassical theist is going to say, I like the foreknowledge stuff. I'll keep that. But one of those four, maybe all four, uh, but one or more of those four classical attributes, they've got to go. Like mm-hmm. Linda Zegzebski's like uh, impassibility, get rid of that. But she wants to keep the other three. William Lane Craig is going to be like, get rid of all those. Those are terrible. I don't want any of those. Get rid of them. Yeah. <laughs> then when you get to the open theist, the open theist is like, definitely get rid of all four of those. Those are awful. Get rid of them. So William Hasker's like, they all got to go. Uh, and then what also needs to go, that whole like exhaustive foreknowledge stuff, that's got to go because God does have some knowledge of the future. Like certain things are about the future are certain. Um, maybe like God's declared, this is when Christ is going to come back. And so God's like, I know that. But what's like Parker going to do tomorrow with his own free will? And I don't know. I got a good idea. You know, I know the probability what he's going to do, but what he in fact will do. Don't know. Don't know. Yeah. yeah. So those are kind of the ways to distinguish these different models. Okay. Ryan, um, do you find yourself nicely fitting in in any of these? At the moment, I want to go with the neoclassical view. Um, John Peckham has really convinced me there's good biblical evidence for uh, God having foreknowledge. My worry is trying to figure out the exact way to get the foreknowledge. So um, the Molinist story I really like, but it's got some grounding problems. Um, Ryan Byerly has this nice account called uh, the time ordering account, which basically gets you Molinism at the end of the day, but it has a response to the grounding objection built into it. Mm. Uh, And that I find really interesting. I'm just still trying to think through... Uh, some of the entailments here, because there's some really complicated uh, philosophy of time stuff going on there. Yeah. How about, um, just real quick, how about immu- immutability? I know you you would want to uh, qualify the others, but what, what do you think of immutability? 
Yeah. So because when I was looking over the Sophia paper that we're talking about today, I used the phrase weak immutability. Mm-hmm. And uh, Keith Yandel always told me that this is just terrible. It's awful uh, to use these kind of phrases because he's like, everyone always had a really clear idea of what immutability meant. When you start saying weak immutability, you're just muddying the waters. And I was like, I didn't want to give it up when I first wrote this paper. Um, but later on, like for the God in Motion book, for instance, I just got rid of it. I was like, I'm not, I'm, immutability says no intrinsic or extrinsic change. I'm saying God does both. Um, God can't change his nature, but that's not interesting because yeah. you can't change your essence. Um, so God can't cease to be like all powerful or something, but he can go from not exercising his power to exercising it. He can go from knowing that Parker does not exist to going, huh, I'm sustaining Parker in existence now. He can do all those kind of changes. And so I'm like, I don't really need the phrase immutability uh, at that point, unless I want to be like really diplomatic and make the Southern Baptist think that like, you know, I'm one of them or something, you know, right, I'm using right. the classical language in this really twisted way. Yeah. You know, well, there's well, reasons you could do that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I've, I found the whole thing very uh, muddy just as it is because uh, most most of the impetus for holding on to immutability is you don't want to say that God changes his nature because, mm-hmm. because on the popular level, you go, um, well, God's made promises. What are you saying? God can go back on his promises. And it's like, well, no, no, but that's not immutability. You're talking about God not changing at all. And right. so what the, the big strong imp- uh, impetus for it is actually something that you can pick out yourself and say, no, God's nature does not change. Exactly. Because when I look at, I mean, when you look at open theists and panentheists and pantheists, I mean, none of them want to say that God's nature changes, mm-hmm. like, because they're like, well, he has an essence, he has a nature. That's not changing. It changes in other ways, but not that. Like, so I'm just like, no one uh, really thinks this. Uh, and they've all got ways to explain why that's the case. So we don't really need immutability to to explain that. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's an interesting point. Um, because yeah, some of the, some of the guys that I interact with, if you let in change in the door, then it, it everything's up for grabs. Right. Like, well, not not if you tell a story about that and you right. have a co- coherent and it makes sense and it's not ad hoc, you know. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. Well, let's move on. So we we talked um, models of theism. So now let's uh, we need to kind of demarcate pan pantheism in order to get at what panentheism is. So so can you help us out with pantheism? Yeah, so pantheists disagree on various things, but what they all share in common is they agree that like God and the universe or the multiverse, again, you know, depending on how much you think exists out there. So God and the whole cosmos are identical. So you might be able to say like God and the universe are in a constitution relation because you don't think identity is a real thing in the world. So you're like, well, a constitution is what we're really after. That's a, that's a way you could go. Um, but the big idea here is that God is not ontologically distinct from the universe. There's just this one substance that exists, and that substance is God. Everything else, like you, me, this couch I'm sitting on, is just a mode of God. There's only one substance, and it's just God. So that's panentheism in a nutshell, or pantheism in a nutshell. Yeah, okay. So in in the paper, I think when you were responding to Clayton, or maybe it was, is it Gurky? I want to say Gurky. I think it's Gurka. Um, the Germans have always tried to help me with uh, with the pronunciation here, and I just can't. Gurkha There's a sound right. I cannot yeah. make. Gurkha, yeah. So you responded to someone and you said, hey, they said world when they should have said universe because universe refers to like the physical and world includes also, you know, if you believe in abstracta, then it includes abstracta and God and everything in the conception of the world. So when we demarcate pantheism, um, do we want to say that God and the world are the same or would they just say God and the universe are the same? 
It depends what you want to go. So as I understand that a world is a um, maximally compossible uh, like proposition that describes the entire way things are. Yeah. So if it's just God and nothing else, then that's the way the world is. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's just a world filled with nothing but shrimp and, 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 and only shrimp, um, for some reason, I always go to this because it was in Buffy the Vampire Slayer uh, <laughs> to explain possible worlds. Like that's a possible world. That's the way it goes. Right. Um, if it's a multiverse, then that's the way the world is. Mm-hmm. So whatever all the stuff that exists is, if you're a pantheist, you're going to say there's God. All the other stuff is just modes of God. So if you want it to be a you know world filled with shrimp or a world filled with uh, a bunch of different universes, still just God at rock bottom. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's that's helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So now, um, this why why did panentheism come along? Uh, like, what was the impetus for this via media between theism and pantheism? Right. So part of the claim, okay, so one, you get a controversy up and running um, after the Reformation, which is this pantheist controversy. Uh, there's all sorts of like uh, arguments about the nature of infinity that people start running and uh, people go, if I get infinity, then it seems like God is identical to the world. And some people are like, well, we don't want that, but we do want infinity and we do want all this other stuff. Like that sounds cool. So what if there's like a middle ground here? Hmm. You know, there's like some sort of like middle position that's panentheism. And so what they'll say is that the universe is in God, but God is more than the universe. Mm -hmm. And so like the more than the universe, like that part is supposed to indicate that it's not pantheism. And then when we say the universe is in God, like that's supposed to somehow indicate we're not doing theism either. So it's pan in theism. That's that's supposed to be the idea. Um, Here's some of the common claims you hear today, though, from panentheists, because there's a bit more going on today. What they'll do is they'll often say that their model of God is a really ancient model of God that you find across the world's religions. So even though the term panentheism isn't coined until the 19th century, they'll still say it's like a really old idea and it's very global. And then you'll also hear them say things like panentheism gives you a much more like relational and dynamic model of God. And I gather that relational and dynamic are good things. And then um, you'll also find them constantly saying that like you've got more like a more scientific view than the rivals. So like panentheism, like the way it's viewed today, is it's supposed to be like this sort of like magical unicorn that like unites all the religions and all the sciences together. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've heard a lot more of the, the, um, the science one. I've heard some of the relation. I've, I've definitely heard the science one. And I, I, that's why I appreciated your article so much. Cause by the end you're like, Hey, what are we even talking about here? Yeah. You, you, you can't really claim, you can't make these really strong claims if you can't even demarcate yourself from the other views. Mm-hmm. I, I just real quick, we didn't we didn't talk about this, but mm-hmm. um, where does process theology fit in with this? Are, are process theologians more uh, tend towards uh, um, panentheism, or or do they are they just kind of the ugly stepchild trying to fit in somewhere? Where are they at? Right. So as I see it, um, okay. So Charles Hartshorn is like one of the major major thinkers for the process theist, and he says he's a panentheist. And okay. then you see people like David Griffin uh, saying the same thing. Um, what they're doing though is, so I take a model of God to be one piece of a worldview. And this is what Benedict Gurkha says as well. He's like, he's like a model of God is not your whole worldview because your whole worldview includes all sorts of stuff. A model of God, just one piece of it. Um, what I take process theism to be is a model of God, like panentheism, plus a particular metaphysical story of how other parts of the world hang together. So I think it's a much bigger claim. It's a worldview instead of a model of just a, a model of God. Okay. 
Yeah, that's that's that makes sense because that's where I've heard a lot of the relational talk from the process folks because they're like, look, it's so so God so relational that he's mm-hmm. in process with his his creation, and somehow there's this really strong dependence, but it's not quite identity relation. And yeah, okay, that mm-hmm. that that's super helpful. Um, so then, what are some ways that that panentheists have had uh, tried to demarcate themselves from from these other rivals? Mm-hmm. So one of the one of the reasons why I did this demarcation paper was because I just found it really difficult to figure out what was going on because I saw a whole bunch of different metaphors being borrowed from different traditions and different models of God, and then that's supposed to be what panentheism is. But I take it like as obvious like if you're borrowing a metaphor from a different model of God, that doesn't help you say anything unique about your model of God. And then like other panentheists, like they would talk about like there's all this diversity within panentheism. Um, and I, I'm like, that's fine. Like, give me all the diversity you want. But like, what's the thing that like is unique to you guys? Like, uh, like what's the thing that like unifies all this different diversity? And so like, what exactly is, you know, panentheism? Like if I became a panentheist tomorrow, what would I be affirming? Would I have to change my beliefs? I don't know. I couldn't tell. So, so here's one way like people will try to go. Um, they'll say things like uh, God is both imminent and transcendent on panentheism. But I find this utterly useless because when you try to like really cash that out, um, it looks like it's just omnipresence. And so, for example, uh, Philip Clayton, who's a contemporary panentheist, he says, what we need to do as a panentheist is maximize imminence. And I'm like, okay, what is that? And he's like, well, one possibility is om- om- omnipresence. And I'm like, well, but everybody affirms omnipresence. That's not interesting. And so like Gayhar Gasser, like his work on this topic, he does the same thing. He's like, okay, well, let's really look at see what this in God means. And he's like, the best Canada is omnipresence. And then, um, and then what he does is he says, well, that entails that there's no difference between classical theism and panentheism. And so here's, here's a quote from Gasser. Uh, so Gasser says, as a consequence, classical theism and panentheism are not two rival accounts of God. Rather, they underline different aspects of one and the same God who's maximally transcendent and imminent at the same time. So that account, like this demarcation problem, it just stands. And, and, and Gayhorn knows that. He told that to me in person. And then he has a footnote where he says it too. He's like, doesn't solve the problem. Here's another common way of seeing people try to do it. <laughs> um, they'll try to take like analogies from classical theism. Uh, and so they'll say like the universe is God's body in some sort of metaphorical sense. And I'm like, okay, cool. So you want to take a metaphor from classical theism and then tell me that this metaphor somehow makes you distinct from classical theism. Okay, sure, sure, sure. Now, there's there's something there's something to be said here though. Um, I think when you look at other people, what they'll do is they'll give you a non-metaphorical account of what it would mean for the world to to be God's uh, body, what it would mean for the universe to be God's body. Where do those come from? Well, uh, Richard Swinburne, who's an open theist, he gives you an account of that. And then T.J. Mawson, who's a classical theist, he gives you an account of that as well. And so I'm like, okay, maybe you don't have to borrow the metaphor. Maybe you could just borrow the literal ideas from other models of God. Is that going to help? Mm, I'll get to that in a second. Yeah. So what Swinburne does is he says, um, here's a whole bunch of different criteria for how you get embodiment. This is what it means for a person to be embodied in a particular like chunk of matter. And he says omnipresence is not sufficient to satisfy all of those different criteria. So hmm. the universe, you could talk in some loose stretch sense, they say the universe is God's body, but God's omnipresence alone doesn't satisfy all the different conditions. Yeah. TJ Mawson pushes back and says, actually, um, all those other conditions that you had, uh, Richard, like those are too strong. You don't need those. Um, so omnipresence actually does satisfy uh, everything you need to, in order to say that the universe is God's body. 
Now, I'm not going to go into what those criteria are because I think what's going on here is it's missing the point. And so yeah. here's the point. You're no longer making any unique claims about the nature of God. Mm-hmm. What all these different thinkers are doing is they're agreeing that God is omnipresent and they're agreeing what it means to say that God's omnipresent. And then they're going, well, what does it mean to be embodied though? And so now we're having a debate about what counts as a body. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you're supposed to be giving me some sort of unique claim about God, not about like what it means to be a body. Um, so if panentheism is supposed to tell me something unique about God, well, the underlying claim is that God's omnipresent. Well, everybody says that. So if that's the only claim that it is, um, well, then everybody is a panentheist because everybody affirms omnipresence, in which yeah. case then there's no demarcation between panentheism and its rivals. So we've got the collapse again. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was so helpful in reading your paper where it, it has, you have to say something unique about God. Stop, you, you keep going back to the universe, back to the universe, back to the bodies, back to this. Okay, cool. But as long as you're not saying something unique about God, then other people are going to be able to say that and you have not sufficiently demarcated yourself from them. Yes. Especially since you're the one making all these claims about being scientific and relational. And, yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause I'm like, give me something to back it up. You know, something interesting. Yeah. What is it? Yeah. Yeah. So um, when you think like panentheist today, uh, who, who are the pop is, is Philip Clayton, like one of the, the leading guys. Cause I always hear about Clayton, but I, I don't know how yeah. he's kind of received in the Academy. He's, he's such a nice guy. Like, uh, so like, like, and he's written a ton of books, a ton of papers. And so he really is kind of like, he's just like this cheerleader for like everything. So like when you're around him, you just feel like you feel very encouraged. Um, and so that's kind of when he's doing the panentheist project, like that's, that's my take as well. He's just like, he's like everybody who should be a panentheist. And I don't know what your view is saying, but like, you should be a panentheist too. And I'm like, okay, well, okay, well, what is this panentheism stuff? And so Clayton makes a few attempts at, at trying to demarcate panentheism. One uh, attempt he makes is to say that God is the only substance that exists. And, and I'm like, well, but that's what the pantheist told me. So that's not going to help. But Clayton's like, well, hang on, hang on. There's more. There's more, though. There's more of a difference. Uh, he, says the pan, he says the pantheist denies that God is a temporal conscious knower. And so that's what's supposed to be. Just, so panentheism would say God is a temporal conscious knower, but pantheism would say he's not. And I think this is just demonstrably false. Um, so Andre Bukharev is a contemporary pantheist, and he affirms that God is a temporal conscious knower. And then another contemporary pantheist, uh, Tim Mander, like he points out that a very common historical argument for pantheism is to focus on omniscience. And omniscience involves God being a, a knower, in case you're yeah. wondering. Yeah. So like God knows all the things, um, including your own perspective. Why? Because your perspective is one of God's many modes. So he thinks that pantheism, and this is very a classical argument for, for pantheism, is that if God really knows all the things, then he needs to know what it's like to be Parker, and he needs to know I am Parker. And so he's yeah, got all that, the stuff. That's like uh, <clears throat> that's reminiscent of Zegzebski's uh, uh, omni-subjectivity, right? Like, mm-hmm. It's a step further, though, because on, on this like maximal empathy account that Zegzebski has, if I empathize with you, I know that you and me are not the same person. Yeah, because if I confuse yeah. like your perspective with mine, then I would have failed to empathize with you. you. I guess the 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 inclination there is that you can't empathize with yourself. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Interesting. All right. Sorry to sorry to get us uh, down. No, no, no. no. There. Um, but that's that's one that um, like actually Andre Bukharev okay. tries to argue from omnisubjectivity to uh, pantheism, and I go, that's eh, not empathy anymore. Um, but yeah, so Clayton, though, so here's another like move that Clayton tries to do. Uh, so Clayton's written a response to my paper, 
And and he says there's like two hardcore <laughs> like claims from panentheism that demarcate it. Uh, and so he says, first, like God is temporal. And then second, God is passable. And he's like, those are real hardcore claims. And I'm like, okay, well, but the neoclassical theists say that. And then all the open theists definitely affirm that. And then most pantheists also affirm that God's temporal and passable. So there's nothing here demarcating panentheism from its rivals. Um, and then further, I guess to kind of like finally like put this to rest here, like, so if panentheism really is like this ancient model of God that you find across the world's religions, then like most of the alleged panent panentheists throughout history are not going to be affirming temporality or passability. Like those really are like kind of more unique, uh, more modern sort of claims. So when you look at the actual history of panentheism, you find theologians who affirm that God is timeless and impassable. And so here's an example of this. Mm. Karl Krauss the guy who coined the term panentheism. He was like, God's timeless and impassable. And I'm like, okay. And then like Benedict Gerke points out, like most panentheists historically, they've said that God's not one being among many beings because they deny that God's temporal and impassable and mutable. I mean, you, one thing you could do, you could say, well, like Karl Krauss, I know you coined the term panentheism. And so therefore you claim to be an authority on panentheism since you came up with the term, but you don't know what it is. You don't, you don't really know, understand what it is. Like you could say that if you want, um, or you could just say this way of demarcating panentheism fails. Those are some of your options, I think. Yeah, that is so, that is so tricky. Yeah. Like you, you made up this word, but sorry, man, like you don't get it. Yeah, I know. But, but yeah, I'm like, if you, if you can't sufficiently demarcate it, maybe you don't get it, or maybe it's just a, an empty concept and, and yeah, it's a nice word and it's, and we kind of have a fuzzy concept of it, but when you try to pin it down, there's nothing really there. And really, you're just pinning one of the other models of God on accident, right? Um, does does so? How about how about Gurkha? Does his um, is he able to demarcate it better? You think than Clay? Or I I do I do. Um, so I'll go through what, kind of what I do in the paper, and then I'll later on we'll talk about how I've changed my mind uh, when we talk about some other questions. Um, so like one of the things that Benedict does in one of his papers is he says this. He says that um, the only difference between classical theism and panentheism is the modal status of the universe. And so he tries to develop this in a couple different writings. And so the big idea is that like, you know, so all you like classical, neoclassical, you open theist, you affirm the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. Uh, and then, and so what you're saying is that like, you know, the universe or the multiverse is contingent. Whereas a panentheist, what we're going to say is that creation ex nihilo, that's false. Get rid of it. And instead the universe or the multiverse is necessary. Um, or here's the way like Tom Ward would put it. He says that like, it's necessary that God creates something like God has to exist with a universe of some sort. And so you call that like the necessity of the cosmos or something like that. Mm. So what I do in the first paper is I try to point out that like different classical theists, like, like Catherine Rogers and Hugh McCann, um, they accept that divine simplicity entails a modal collapse. And then uh, there's a neoclassical theist named uh, Class Cray who says that God's goodness entails a modal collapse. Like God has to create the multiverse in the best possible of, of all multiverses. Mm. And so what you do with this modal collapse is it entails that the universe is necessary. And so what I'm basically doing is going like, well, there's a classical theist, a neoclassical theist, and a panentheist. They're agreeing on something that they're not supposed to be agreeing upon. And so it seems like the demarcation like, uh, like here fails. Yeah. Second, like what I do in the paper is I point out that not all panentheists reject the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. Um, and not all panentheists say that God must exist with the universe of some sort. So like Philip Clayton is an example of this. So he says that the doctrine of creation ex nihilo is true and God does not have to exist with anything. God's free to just say, I don't want to create anything at all. 
But one of the things I point out that Benedict can do is he can just say, well, look, Ryan, like these people are being really fuzzy. I, you know, if well, I really want to be able to demarcate my view and give good arguments for the view after I demarcate it. So I don't really care if a couple different like contemporary thinkers, I don't care if Clayton like disagrees. Um, what I'm saying is this is how you should demarcate panentheism. Mm -hmm. And I am now convinced that that is absolutely correct. Like hmm. the only unique claim that I can discern is that panentheism should say that God must create and exist with the universe of some sort. And so that like, it's just necessary that God create something. So you got to get rid of uh, Krishna X Nilo if you want to be a panentheist, as far as I can tell. Okay. There's a one problem though, before we move on to the next thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the things I point out in the first paper is this doesn't really help you necessarily say anything unique about the nature of God. No, you're still talking about the universe. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you also can't really figure out then, well, just so the universe has to exist. Well, how is that more relational? How is that more dynamic? How is that more scientific? Yeah. And it doesn't really illuminate that really catchy slogan so, um, that like the universe is in God. And this is something that Benedict himself actually complains. He's got a paper where he complains about all these panentheists, like saying all sorts of stuff. And he's like, it seems like the only thing that unites us is this really catchy slogan <laughs> that the world is in God, but the, you know, but the God's part of the world. And so I'm like, okay, that's fine. Cool. Benedict, I like what you've done here, but like, how do you cash out this catchy slogan then? Like yeah. what's going on? Yeah. Yeah. That, that, um, yeah, that, well, so actually, with with McCann, um, so he's I, I like McCann. Um, he he would say that God has eternally created because there's this whole problem with creation we've talked about in our la in the last episode. Um, I think it was fifty three or something. Uh, go go check and listen to that one. Did God create time? But so so, what? There's a modal collapse and. That means that the universe is necessary. He, God had to necessarily create, but he still affirms um, creation ex nihilo. And so, so would that be would that be sufficient to demarcate um, a panentheist from a classical theist saying, well, yeah, they're both necessary. The creation is is necessary on both accounts, but um, one has creation ex nihilo and panentheism doesn't. Would that be sufficient or no? I don't think so. So I've done a lot more work on creation ex nihilo since writing this, uh, this Sophia paper. Um, so when you look at the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, it's like really robustly developed uh, in the Christian and Islamic and Jewish traditions. It is trying very hard to say the universe has to be contingent because yeah. if the universe is co-eternal with God, uh, so there's two claims here. One, the universe began to exist and there's a state of affairs where God exists without anything at all. Um, and then two, the universe is contingent. Um, whereas that was to contrast with either an emanationist scheme or an eternal creation. So on an eternal creation view, God somehow still like, like causes the universe to exist, like, like from his will, instead of just emanating from his nature, mm -hmm. but the universe is co-eternal with God. There's never a state of affairs where God exists without the universe. And for the medieval views on their understanding of modality, if something is eternal, it is necessary. So they would just see like an eternal creation, just, that just means creation is necessary. And that's exactly what the creation ex nihilo was meant to say. It was like, well, no, 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 we want it to be contingent. So that's why it hasn't always existed. Um, so that's, so yeah, so that's yeah. some of the stuff there. So I would just go, McCann, I, I see what you're up to, but you just haven't understood the, the full account of what creation ex nihilo really says. You've uh, actually bought into a doctrine of eternal creation. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think the, 
the scariest thing there is something you you brought to my attention earlier, um, and and probably in the last podcast, but about eternal generation. And so, you know, if you mm-hmm. want to say that the sun is eternally generated, and you know, you, you don't want to be an Arian, uh, well, there was never a time when Christ was not. Okay, well, you're also saying there's never a time when creation was not. And so, if creation is on par with the sun, then you you might accidentally be making yourself, you know, it's, it's eternal, but so is creation. So you might be accidentally yeah. committing yourself to some form of Arianism. It wouldn't be Arianism because you'd, you'd be avoiding Arianism um, because you've got the sun, God, the sun's always existed and you've got the universe always existed. Um, but you'd be, you would kind of be losing, you'd be losing, I guess, the distinction between, well, what's the difference between begotten and made um, in the creed? Because the difference between was supposed to be like one has a beginning the universe and the other one doesn't and you've lost that. And so whatever the response to the Aryans, that's gone. Yeah. That would be, I think that's the entailment. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. 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 And so then maybe you'd have to make uh, eternal generation, some form of uh, emanation or something like that, which I don't know what you'd have to do, but it's scary. Nonetheless, you're going to have to do something. Yeah. Right. Right. What do you guys want to do? I mean, we can leave it up to them to figure out, but uh, yeah, Yeah. you're going to have to make some kind of move. Right. So then moving on to um, to your hardcore uh, of panentheism, I thought this was really interesting. And uh, well, let's just let's just jump into it and then we can continue on. But you you end up um, you, you want to make metaphysical space and time attributes of God for, for the panentheist, not yourself. But uh, can you explain like what that means for us? A little bit. Yeah. So I originally hated this proposal, but then JT Turner reminded me that like I'd come up, come up with it like one night and he's like, he's like, come on, you, you put that in the paper, you know how to demarcate it. And I'm like, okay, fine, 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 fine. So, <laughs> so like what I do is I'm like, okay, here's a way to literally say that the universe is in God. And so now we've got a way to cash out that catchy panentheistic slogan. And so first what you do is you say, there's this absolute space and there's absolute time. And so on an absolute theory of space and time, space and time exists regardless of whatever, whatever like physical or non-physical objects exist within space and time. So for instance, like the universe might just cease to exist, but space and time would remain. Um, now, second, what you do is then you say absolute space and time, those are divine attributes. They're attributes of God. And so what we did on the, like the previous like episode when I was on your show, like I, we talked about how you could do that with time. Um, I don't know quite yet how to do that with, with a uh, space though. Mm-hmm. We'll ask like Ross Inman to figure that out for us, I guess. Um, but here's what the payoff would be for the panentheist. You would have a way of literally saying that the universe exists in God because the universe exists in space and time. And then you also quite literally can say that God is more than the universe because space and time, God can exist without the universe. Uh, and so you have a non-metaphorical way of capturing mm-hmm. that like really catchy, uh, panentheistic slogan. Yeah, do <clears throat> this was this was interesting um, just to kind of think about for myself. How how did the panentheists receive that uh, that proposal that you gave them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was interesting to find out because I only found this out. Um, I think it was like maybe like six or seven months ago when I started looking into it. So like Benedict, like he had told me like ages ago though over like email um, that he thought my paper like was not too far off from like his own views. So he thought like there was, you know, he's like really sympathetic. And so I'm like, cool. Yeah. At least one panentheist who's like sympathetic to the proposal. Uh, Philip Clayton, he wrote a response to it, uh, to my paper. And he says that I solved the demarcation problem. Like my proposal solves it. Uh, and then he in, and actually says that like, this is exactly what the panentheist should say. They should make the space and time attributes of God. And I'm like, okay. So I've got two panentheists who are really sympathetic to the proposal. 
And then Oliver Crisp, who's not a panentheist, but he's like written on the topic. He also published a response and he said that my way was, uh, was at least one way of demarcating panentheism. So some people at least think that there's something to this demarcation. Um, so maybe I'm onto something. I, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So, so you, you brought up how in our last conversation, we, we talked about making time an attribute of God. I'm sorry, Brad. Can can you can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, man. Yeah, the the TIU Wi-Fi is killing me right now. Um, in our last conversation, we talked about time being an attribute of God, and then I read your paper here, and I was really nervous that maybe metaphysical or absolute time and absolute or metaphysical space can't come apart. And so if they can't come apart, then we would both be on the hook for metaphysical space being in God. Mm -hmm. um, what do you what do you make of that? Yeah. So there's a couple of options I think you've got here. One is to just say, well, look, um, the real hardcore commitment of panentheism, at least according to like Benedict Gurkha, Thomas Ord and like Mikhail Stenmark. And, and I think they're right is to say that like. The real unique claim is that you reject creation ex nihilo and you think that God has to exist with a universe of some sort. And so if that's the real unique claim of panentheism, mm. then you could go with this sort of like, um, you know, divine attributes uh, or space and time view and say, well, here's a bunch of other people who affirm creation ex nihilo. Samuel Clark, Isaac Newton, um, you know, uh, Nicole Orsami. They said that space and time are attributes of God and they affirm creation ex nihilo. They also think God is free to just refrain from creating anything whatsoever. And then Clark and Newton, they also go further. They're like, God could have created the universe sooner uh, if he wanted to. Um, so it really is the case that like God's got a lot more freedom over, cre over creation, whether or not it exists, when it exists, than the panentheist would allow. And so I'm like, okay, here's an interesting claim. Space and time are attributes of God, but uh, it's not unique to panentheism. But you've got some more options. Here's another option. Hmm. One option you could do is you could go, um, well, I don't really like um, this idea of like space time. Um, like I want to make them come apart. So that way I can say time is an attribute of God, but space is not. How do you do it? Mm -hmm. uh, well, first you can go, well, special theory of relativity, it didn't originally have space-time as a single entity in it. Like that was not part of Einstein's original uh, development of it. That's something Minkowski developed later because it made the equations easier. And so I'm like, okay, cool. Um, so I don't necessarily need space-time in order to do special theory of relativity. Uh, well, then also further than that, you can go... Um, well, I, I, like a lot of different like, contemporary theories within quantum mechanics, they make space and time come apart again. So space-time hmm. just doesn't really work at all. It doesn't fit with it whatsoever. They come apart again. And so I'm like, okay, there's some motivation within physics to go make space and time come apart. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other people too who are just going, well, this whole idea of space-time, it's just a, it's a fiction that gives us some useful predictions. It doesn't actually have like any metaphysical or ontological weight to it. It's just yeah. a fiction. And so you could go... All right, I don't want to be a panentheist. Um, I don't really don't want like space being an attribute of God, but I like that whole time stuff. Ryan was right about that. That's really cool. So what you could do is you could just go space and time. They're not the same thing. Um, time, absolute, cool, make it an attribute of God. Space, whew, I don't know what to say about space. Um, maybe it's absolute. Maybe it's relational. I don't know. And what would it even mean to say that it's an attribute of God? Uh, at this point, I just don't know. Um, so uh, you could ha happily just like cut that apart. Um, and just make these things different things and get rid keep the time, but get rid of the space stuff. Yeah. 
but I don't understand absolute space well enough. Um, like Ross Inman's done some really good work on this. And, and I've had some conversations with him over the like several years ago when we were overlapped at Notre Dame about this. I just, I just don't know what to say about space yet. So I, I can't make like a really, a, like a good competent judgment, I think, um, on whether or not we should say space is an attribute of God. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. I, and I was thinking of Ross Inman, um, his view of, um, his recapturing of immensity and, mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, um, I, I defended your uh, demarcation in class because I thought, well, is is uh, Ryan Mullins really saying anything unique about God? Isn't this just immensity? And then I, I talked about how it's actually the the inverse, converse. It's the opposite. Uh, it's like diametrically opposed. So instead of God being everywhere that there is, like immensity, like wherever there's a space, God will fill that space. This is the space is in God and wherever anything is going to exist, it will be inside of him. Yeah. And, and you can make some flowery metaphorical language and, and maybe the panentheist uh, will like this, but it's like, oh, it's like God's God's uh, womb and the world fills his womb or something. And it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I would never say that ever. But you guys say some other weird stuff I wouldn't say either. So um, so that's kind of how I think of immensity and, and absolute space. But again, I have no idea. And I if you don't know, then I'm definitely not going to know. <laughs> I've just picked it up from you. What you said sounds right to me. Um, but again, like, yeah, I, I just feel when it comes to space, I just, I just find myself out of my depths. I really do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I feel the same. Um, real quick. Can we talk about like panpsychism and idealism? Um, mm-hmm. Are those so ideal? Some, some idealists will say some Christian idealists will say that um, the universe exists as um, a thought in God's mind or a set of propositions in God's mind or whatever. Is that, is that panentheism? It's not supposed to be. Uh, okay. Well, there's some people who are interested and want it, want it to be that case. Um, so Sam Liebens, uh he's got a new book called the principles of Judaism and then him and Tyron Goldschmidt have a series of papers trying to argue that theism just entails idealism. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things they do really clearly in their in their papers and in Sam's book is to say this is not panentheism and it's not pantheism because they're like, we don't want that. Yeah. Um, but Sam's like, I do like the idea that like the universe is just ideas in the mind of God. Yeah. So you're an idea. I'm an idea. All this stuff is just ideas. Um, I've got a paper that I'm working on and that Sam's going to our plan is to have Sam like write a, write a response to it mm-hmm. uh, going. This isn't theism um because or doctrine of creation because you don't get creation at all because this yeah. that claim that, that they want is that you still get a creation ex nihilo yeah and i'm like well okay creation ex nihilo means that the universe is not co-eternal with god and there's some sort of state of affairs where god exists without the universe and sam's really clear in his definition that that's part of creation ex nihilo and i'm like okay well if we just are god's ideas that's it well god's always had his ideas mm-hmm. uh they're co-eternal with god god's not free to exist without them there's no state of affairs where God existed without his ideas. We don't have creation ex nihilo anymore. Mm. Um, uh, further, you'd also get a modal collapse because all of God's ideas about all possibilities. Yeah. And so that means if all the universes that could exist, they just do exist because they're God's ideas. You're going to have like a modal collapse. You're going to have some kind of, or maybe some sort of modal realism or something like that. And Sam's like, Oh, I don't, I don't like that. Um, so he's like, I'm going to have to do some, some, some fancy footwork to respond. So that's kind of like one of the projects like uh, we're going to do hopefully in the future is to try to tease this out and be like, 
just doesn't seem like it gets you anything you want. And he's like, ah, I'll, I'll give you everything that I want. <laughs> well, that that's super interesting because uh, the work I've done on uh, the authorial analogy, some, some folks want to say, well, okay, that's fine, but just make it idealism. You know, God is the author of the world and, and it exists in his mind. And I want to say, no, 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 no. It's, it's outside of himself. I still want creation ex nihilo. I still want creation on its own, though him still upholding it. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, your work on that. And, and I got to do more work on creation ex nihilo as well. Um, it'll be interesting to see what he says about, um, uh, yeah, maybe like the intentions, like you have, I don't know. I'm, I'm just thinking of a bunch of random stuff that he could respond with, but we'll see. Yeah. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm on your side on that one. How about, um, how about panpsychism? Cause it, that's, that to me seems like the philosophical version of panentheism, but you know, maybe, maybe I'm totally off there. Yeah, because I, I know several people got really excited about this. And so a couple of years ago, people were asking me, is this a way to do it? And I was like, well, what is it telling you about God? Mm. Well, nothing. Um, so so all you're doing is saying there's a whole bunch more conscious stuff in the world that we, than we thought. Uh, and so, well, God could create a universe ex nihilo um, that he didn't have to create at all. And it could be a panpsychist world. Mm. And so I'm like, okay, well, the core claim was supposed to be that universe has to exist that god has to create it okay well you could also be a classical theist um and say like god's timeless immutable he's not really related to the universe you know uh, all the other stuff you want to say and he creates freely ex nihilo like a panpsychist world so there's just there's just more conscious stuff than you thought and so i just don't think so basically as, as, as i see it it comes down to this saying that there's more conscious stuff in the world than you originally thought that doesn't help illuminate what it means to say the universe is in God and that God's more than the universe. It doesn't help illuminate that it's more scientific or it's more relational. It's more dynamic. It just says, yeah, there's a few more conscious things than you thought. <laughs> that's good. I, yeah. That's, that's helpful. That's really helpful. Okay. Um, I think you're, you're definitely right on that one. Um, the pan in there makes it sound, Oh yeah, there's, they're related. There's pan. It's all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, so so now you're working on uh, panentheism again, and from just what I've seen online and and talk with you a little bit, you're you're less um, you're less uh, optimistic about how you've characterized the hardcore of panentheism. Can you go into that? Why why do you think that is? What what what's changed? Mm-hmm. So, because like I originally thought there was a lot to say about this um, identifying space and time as divine attributes. Mm-hmm. But then when I started reading more, like, so like people like Benedict Gurka and then Tom Ward and Mikhail Stenmark, they really convinced me that, well, the real hardcore claim of panentheism is that God has to exist with the universe of some sort. And I'm like, okay, because they're like, it's denying creation ex nihilo. You have to affirm like an eternal creation or an emanation, one of those. And I'm like, right. Well, then I can identify, like I mentioned earlier, I can identify a bunch of people who affirm creation ex nihilo, who think that God is free to exist without anything whatsoever. And they're happy to say the universe, uh, or I'm sorry, happy to say that space and time are divine attributes. So like Samuel Clark and Isaac Newton would be cases of this. And so I'm like, what I have then is it seems like I've got this cool way for the panentheists to cash out their catchy slogan, but it's not unique to panentheism. So it would basically be kind of like, kind of like the case of omnipresence where it's like, okay, well, sure. Like you could say that God's like maximally like imminent in the universe because he's omnipresent. Well, lots of people say that. So you've not done anything unique. And so I think that would be the case too with making space and time attributes of God. Like not everybody wants to say that. So it's more unique than omnipresence, Yeah. but a bunch of people who want to reject all sorts of other like panentheistic claims can affirm it and have in fact affirmed it. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder you, we, we, we 
talked about this a little bit earlier um, where, so like Swinburne will say, yeah, in a metaphorical sense, maybe uh, I don't know if he'd say analogical, it's a little stronger, but in some sense, you know, the, the world can be parsed as God's body and the panentheist would want to say like what, what you say metaphorically or non-literally, I say literally that it's really the case that the bot, the world is God's body. And so maybe here too, they want to say, they would want to demarcate themselves by saying these other folks are re- referring to this relation, uh, this eternal uh, relation between God and the world in an analog. Uh, no, they wouldn't say that. That's not even, that doesn't even work. It wouldn't help. I mean, a lot of panentheists are happy with the doctrine of analogy. Uh, that's okay. worth saying. Okay. Um, because sometimes Thomists think that classical theism owns the market on analogy. Right. And when you look at the actual history of ideas, A, uh, a bunch of classical theists did not affirm analogy at all. Hmm. Um, that comes doesn't really exist until Aquinas. Um, and then B, um, lots of contemporary thinkers who reject classical theism. So like John Peckham thinks all, all language about God is analogical. Um, a bunch of open theists like Richard Rice think all language about God is analogical. Uh, Arthur Peacock, who's a panentheist, um, and then uh, Mark Johnston, who's a panentheist, are all like, yeah, yeah, analogy. And then Mark Johnston's like, I'll do you one more. Uh, I really like Aristotelian stuff. I really like this Highland Morphism stuff. Panentheism. Hmm. And you're like, oh, ooh, okay. Um, so, yeah. So these like these kind of moves, they're interesting, but I don't think they, again, they're they're not really they're not going to be demarcating because they're not yeah. saying anything unique about God that other people are not saying as well. Yeah, that's such a high bar. That's such a good. You you just like hammer them with that. What are you saying about God? What you, and I think it's so mm-hmm. it's so helpful for me to to be thinking through as well. With, for the panentheists so they're they're gonna have to be committed you're you're saying that they're gonna have to be committed to eternal creation uh you know eternal universe these are the folks who are who are saying that their view is more scientific not all of them have said this but doesn't that butt up against doesn't that go against great against um popular science or uh, the conventional wisdom in 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 science and cosmology today it could. So, so Tom Ward's uh, g- got a, a nice reply to this. Yeah. So he could be like, ah, I see. You want to push like some big bang cosmology stuff. Universe hasn't always existed. And he's like, haha. Well, there's a bunch of different scientific theories about a cyclical universe. Yeah. So true. big bang, big crunch. And yeah. so we've got a sequence of universes. So God always exists with a universe of some sort because mm-hmm. there's some sort of necessity of the cosmos. So God has to exist with some stuff. But, um, you know, one universe comes and then it goes. Another one comes and then it goes. On and on for all eternity, forever and ever, amen. Yeah. Yeah, the bang crunch. Yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. I talked about that in class. Yeah, and you brought that up in the paper. Yeah. Dang, I don't... The bang crunch gets me because it's like, well, all right, you just toss that in there. It seems a little ad hoc. And it doesn't seem like there's any way to prove that whatsoever. That is one of the main criticisms, uh, is that, yeah, A, there's no way to prove it. B, it seems like the amount of energy that exists in the universe is insufficient to bring about a big crunch. Um, so this is something like William and Craig like, uh, and some others like will point this out and say like the standard model, Big Bang model, like that's the one that we can actually have good scientific confirmation for. Um, this Big Bang, Big Crunch, you really can't get uh, that. But I'm not a cosmologist, so I'll have to just go, I hope that's right because I don't like this Big Bang, Big Crunch stuff, but I don't yeah. Yeah. But it all, well, actually, you know what, here's the thing. Um, so, so a lot of, a lot of Hindus, uh, like their philosophical system is such that you've got a big bang, big crunch, something kind of like that. You've got a universe that comes into being. And then, um, once one year of the Lord, which is, I forget how many million years, uh, um, one year of the Lord passes as the, like, as it comes to an end, then that universe ceases to be. And there's a time period 
between um, where all these souls are just hanging out, waiting for the next universe to, to be reincarnated. And so what you could say is, well, I don't care if there's not enough energy in the universe for the universe itself to bring back uh, a big crunch. Um, so what God does. God yeah, brings pen- it up. Anentheism. He's more than the universe. Exactly. So, yeah. so the, so, so even if like you want to push that back on Tom Ward, uh, him or any number of like uh, Hindu philosophers could go, mm, well, yeah, I've got a story to tell you. Yeah. Uh, the, the universe isn't all the energy there is in the world. Yeah. And, and that's something you brought up earlier too, that, that the model of God is part of your worldview, but it's not the full worldview. So they have, they have a fuller story of the world. And especially if, if it's coming from Hindu Vedas or, or whatever, thousands and thousands of years old, it's way less ad hoc than they go, oh, look, there's now there's a scientific theory. And that actually makes sense with what we've been saying for thousands of years. Yeah. And this is something every every uh, like theologian I'm aware of does. So like Richard Rice's work on hope and theism, he's really clear that this is a perspective on the nature of God. It could really help inform some of our stuff about um, other aspects of Christian doctrine, maybe not the whole story. It kind of depends on what denomination you're in. Um, so some things that might be like a problem, like some people might go, oh, this is a problem for like open theism. You'd be like, well, I've got some other theological resources I can appeal to to help answer this problem when I give you my full worldview instead of just just my model of God. Yeah. And and to deny them of that was disingenuous because we want to do that yes. same thing. Like we should all want to yeah. do that. And Yeah. Yeah, because I don't, I don't want to be like just cheating and be like, oh, I've got all those nice ways to get out of all these objections, but – but you panentheist over there, like you can't appeal to your own religion. You can't appeal to your other like theories. No, 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 no. Right. Like that's yeah, that would just be cheating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so uh, one one of the things I brought up in in class the other day was um, that maybe we maybe the the problem with demarcating uh, panentheism is that we've we've sought this hardcore, this this rigid uh, criteria, and maybe we should go along a sliding scale. And I don't really like the sliding scale stuff, but. Um, I thought it's a possible way for them to do this. Why Why do you think that they, they can't or shouldn't use a sliding scale to say, because then it, it wouldn't be that big of a deal to find Hugh McCann. Yeah, he's on the, you know, the really shallow end of of panentheism, um, but but it's not really anything that serious. So, you know, why, why, what, how do you argue against that? Yeah. Yeah. So I've been thinking about this a lot and you're not the first person to bring this up to me. Um, and actually Philip Clayton, his response paper, he kind of mentions this too. He's like, well, maybe we don't even need to define the hardcore. And I'm like, okay, well then I don't know what is not uh, panentheism is, is, my, is like one worry. Um, but here's what I think is, is going to go on. If you, if you introduce a sliding scale, you're going to make things really fuzzy again. Mm-hmm. And, and so like, consider like a classical theism, like, which says that like God's timeless, immutable, impassable, simple. And you're like, okay, cool. That's like on one end of the scale. Well, now what about like uh, like Karl Kraus? And again, he's the guy who coined the term panentheism and said he is a panentheist. What does he say? He says God is timeless, simple, immutable, and impassable. And so you're like, okay, um, what's the sliding scale then between like Kraus and Aquinas? Mm, I don't know. Maybe you could go, well, uh, Aquinas affirms creation next to me, hello, and Kraus denies it. And I'm like, okay, but that's not a sliding scale. Those are contradictory positions. There's no middle ground between like contradictions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just, the problem is you got to make it uh, fourteen dimensional, and then you, you can slide them over here. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, they don't fit nicely on the scale because they're saying different things. Right. And so here's another way you could try to do it. So you could say, well, I got classical theism on one end, and then pantheism on the other, yeah. and I'm like, okay. Well, so classical theism says God and the universe are ontologically distinct. Mm-hmm. And then pantheism says God and the universe are not ontologically distinct. 
And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Well, I've got another contradiction. So there's no middle ground. And it's either ontologically distinct or not ontologically distinct. So there's no sliding scale again. Yeah, it's God's a, a little bit ontologically distinct. And it's yeah. like, well, okay, but yeah, there's no middle ground. That's a that's a third position, and that's the position you have not demarcated. Right. Or you have, uh, explicated. Yeah. Yeah, what would it mean to say it's not ontologically distinct, but it's also like kind of distinct? Like, I don't know. Why, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that could be. Well, then yeah. they just they, they can just pull the the Mysterian card that you uh, railed against yeah. the other day. Right. Well, I love the mystery card, you know, if I'm allowed to use it too. But um, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess like, I think one of the sliding scale would do, and then why I also think it's really important to demarcate these views is there's a lot of people who've put in a lot of hard work to try to demarcate their views and say, I've got good arguments for my views. Mm-hmm. So think of like, like Kate Rogers and Ed Fazer. They're like, I've got really good arguments for classical theism. And then like someone like John Peckham or like uh, Tom Morris, they're like, I've got really good arguments for like a neoclassical or modified like uh, model of God. Mm-hmm. And then like Richard Rice, Greg Boyd, um, and like, like William Hasker, they have spent years debating with panentheists and, and all the process crowd to say, we do not have the same model of God as you. We do have something unique and different. Yeah. And they've really like fought that battle. And then like Tom Ward and Benedict Gurkha, they're like, I've got excellent reasons for why you should reject, you know, creation ex nihilo and affirm my model, my panentheistic model of God. And then Andre Bukharev is going to come along and he's like, eh, all you guys are wrong. I've got really good reasons for why you should be a pantheist. And so there's this whole project of people going, I've got a clear model here and I've got good arguments to go. We've got some common ground on a couple of things. Oh, but your view entails uh, all this other stuff. That's this just my view. Or you've got good reasons to like, you know, get rid of these things. Or you've got an incoherence in your view. Mm-hmm. And so this entire project of going, what is the right model of God that Christians should affirm? Like it's all hanging on being able to make some kind of unique claims about the nature of God and God world relation. So I think the sliding scale, if my worry is it would undermine that entire project mm. and we'd be left asking, if I woke up tomorrow and decided to be a panentheist, would I have to change any of my beliefs? Would I be even committing myself to anything whatsoever? Yeah. And it feels like I should have to say yes, but if it's a sliding scale, I might not have to change any of my beliefs and somehow it could still be a panentheist. And that seems like the wrong answer. Yeah. That's a great point, and uh, that's a that's a practical point. It's it's helpful, you know. It's it's philosophically uh, helpful too. But it, yeah, it's a really practical point too. Saying like, let's honor each other's work here, and let's be serious. Let's let's be truth seekers and find the model that best appropriates or speaks of literally, analogically, however you want to parse that of the God who we say created the universe, uh, whether he sneezed it out or did it by his own intentional will. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, are there? There, there are some folks who make these strong claims, um, scientific, relational, these kind of things. Are there others who, I think we, we talked about a little bit, but are there others who want to balloon it up and say everyone is a panentheist? You know, there's this kind of move that happens. Uh, I think Jordan Peterson does this a little bit, but it's a lot of like the syncretists and, and, and folks like this were saying, we're all saying the same type of thing. Are there, is there, are there any um, prominent panentheists who try to make that move? There's... Some okay. Sometimes when I go to like the AAR and I'm around like the science religion crowd, I feel like that's what it, what's being said, yeah. um, and I'm like, okay. Um, there's a book that was called Penentheism Across the World's Religions, mm-hmm. and and they were like, look, it's found in every single like you know religion around the world, and they were like, including Taoism and, and Buddhism, and I'm like, so religions that explicitly deny the existence of God are going to count as panentheists, <laughs> like. If like I, I feel like I've lost the plot here. Like if if like if an atheist can count as a panentheist, yeah. 
then I don't know what could not count as a panentheist. Yeah. Uh, and so Patrick Hutchings, um, like in his work on panentheism, he he reports to be in charge of, there's this big panel discussion uh, at like the World Congress of Religions uh, several years ago. And, and he was in charge of a panel discussion on panentheism across the world's religions. And he says, like when he left, he emerged none the wiser as to what panentheism is. Yeah, uh, and then he's like, he's like, it's, 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 he's like, he's like, if I commit myself to panentheism, it seems like I'm committing myself to nothing, because mm-hmm. uh, he's just like, what are you guys saying? It doesn't seem like you're saying anything. And, and I feel like that does really haunt a lot of what's being said. But then when I look at someone like Benedict Gurka, like he's going, no, I want to demarcate myself here because I think I've got the right view, and I think I've got good arguments for it. Uh, and so he's going to push back and be like, you can't just say anything and everything. Like we've got this actual claims here. Yeah. That's so, that's so interesting that that move, the, the two types of folks, I, I definitely, I think I respect the, the ones who want to say, here's my position and I will argue for it and come at me. And I've made it clear. I, I respect that much more than, um, there's, there's, uh, there's this book on the simulation hypothesis and, uh, Rizvan work and he's a computer scientist and, uh, if he wants to come on the show, he hears this. That's great. Come on, on, let's talk. But he does this thing where he says, you know, the simulation hypothesis explains all everything in, in physics, but also in religion. We're all saying the same thing. Don't you Christians think that, you know, there's another reality out there and there's a creator, a designer, you know, and, and then the Hindus are saying this. And it's like, yeah, dude, if you if you abstract out and you look at it from a thousand feet and you look at all the superficial similarities, oh, okay, but. If I'm committed, to my, then I believe everything. So then believe Christianity, too, when he says, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Because if, if we're committing to everything, you're committed to that. Yep. And now you have a contradiction as well because you're committed yeah. to something else. So, Yeah. So I, that's why I really like Benedict's point about saying there's a concept of God and then there's these different conceptions or models of God. Yeah. And so he's like, we all agree, sure, that like God is perfect, absolutely perfect, and the foundation of reality. Um, he's like, we all agree on that. That's fine. But we've got thicker claims here that we're making that do demarcate us, that do distinguish us. Yeah. So sure, we've got a lot of common ground. We've got a lot of things we agree on, but we've got a bunch of other stuff we disagree on. Yeah. And then that's where the arguments come into play. Yeah. Um, just just a, a follow up on the concept mm-hmm. before we go here. Um, do you does a does a pantheist does a pantheist want to say that their concept of God includes um, perfection? That God is perfect. Um, usually they might, they'll say that, or they'll say that, um, it's the being that's worthy of worship. And when you usually unpack the idea of worth like worship worthiness, this is something that Benedict also points out. Um, it usually, you get to like something that's perfect. Then you've got Brian Leftow going, well, it depends what kind of pantheism you've got, because if it's like, you know, a kind of like, like a Mander or like a Bukharev kind of style pantheism, you've got God who's a conscious knower and he's supposed to have all the great making properties. And you're like, yeah, right, right, right. Whereas if you have like a purely naturalistic sort of pantheism um, where God doesn't know anything because he can't possibly, because he doesn't, he doesn't have consciousness, then left out is going to go, well, that's not a being that's worthy of worship because then part of what it means to worship something is like, it can at least recognize your worship. If it can't recognize your worship, it's just conceptually confused to say you're worshiping it. I'm so grateful to you, my dear toaster for, you know, anything. And you're like, well, the toaster can't recognize your worship. Like, or your your wrong sense of worship, uh, your your misguided worship, right? So then, you yes. could, literally anything could be worship for yep. you know, ignoring yep. it completely, not ever acknowledging it. Yeah, right. So so some pan pantheists are going to be able to go. I can give you all the great making properties. I can give you. I can definitely satisfy the conditions for what it means to worship something. Um, God's got all that slash you know identical to the universe. But yeah, God's got all that. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So there's definitely going to be some are going to say that. Well, so in our concept. 
I think I'm I'm hung up on de demarcating or or finding mm -hmm. uh, the difference between the concept and the model because you know for some people the concept of God might include um, being immutable, but you mm -hmm. would say no, sorry, you've moved into your into your model. Like how do yeah. how do we how do we separate the two? So all the concept is is that it's a perfect being, and it's the ultimate foundation reality. So it's sort of the greatest possible being. Um, and so when you start asking, well, what's the greatest possible being? Well, you're like, well, it's the thing that's got all the great making properties, and it's got them to the like you know like the maximal degree, and it's the source of them as well. And so usually a lot of people are like, yeah, that's cool. That's all built in there. All right. Well, which are the great making properties? Yeah. And that's where you're like, well. Power, that sounds good. And you're like, oh, yeah, of course, of course, of course. No, no one was denying that. Knowledge, goodness. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Immutability? Mm -hmm. You know, you got some people like harumphing over there in the corner going, no, 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 no. You know? So, like, so I think that's where I'm like, okay, so we got some, we got some claims here now. We're seeing, start to see some disagreements. And I'm like, there we go. Now we're starting to get some like actual like models and get some like conceptions up on the table. Okay. So, yeah. So the concept is, is it thin? Is it a thinner? Oh concept? yeah. It's a very thin concept. Same thing. Like when you're talking about like uh, different is like, like what is justice? And so a lot of different moral philosophers be like, well, justice is this, but we've got a bunch of different, like thicker conceptions of like, of justice, like retributive justice or distributive justice or something. And you're like, well, we've all got this idea, like underlying idea of like what you deserve or something like that. Yeah. But how you, but a thicker claim, um, that's where people start debating. Yeah, that's great. That's great. That's really helpful. So once you start fleshing out the, the concept, then, then you start to move into your model because now we have de debates. And, it, and then once the dialogue starts, that's mm -hmm. where you're, you're going into your models. Okay. Nah, that's really great. That's really helpful. Well, this has been huge, man. So if, if somebody wants to find uh, your future work on this, where, where can they find? Well, we, we told them about the first paper. Where can they find the, the next one? So the next one uh, on panentheism is going to be in a book. I think it's called um, uh, Axiology and Monotheism, or, or no, it's Beyond Monotheism. I think that's what Kurt Lohe's going to call it. Um, but that's not going to come out for a couple of years. But I'll update people on my website at rtmullins.com on that. Okay. Uh, and same thing with um, like any other papers and, and projects that I'm working on related to these kind of things. Okay, that's at rtmullins.com. Can they find your podcast there as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my podcast is there and it's also on all the major uh, podcast platforms. So like iTunes, Spotify, um, Stitcher, all the other stuff that people use. Yeah. And that's reluctant uh, theologian, right? The reluctant theologian. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, dude, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and, and thanks for so much for this paper and uh, thoroughly, you know, confusing me on, on panentheism. Uh, you did such a great job and yeah, dude, it's it just, I love your work. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to to explore it help me explore your work on this podcast. All right. Thank you. Awesome. Well, this, uh, this is going to have to do it for now, but Lord willing, we'll have another one coming down the, the pike. Uh, but for now, that's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies and as always all glory to God.